Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Do you enjoy reading books about trees? Or perhaps you enjoy history and reading books about trees? Or perhaps you're interested in the history of the making of the American nation and you like reading about trees? Regardless, if you answered yes to any one of those questions, today's book, American Canopy, Trees, Forests, and the Making of a Nation, by Eric Ratkow, is a fantastic book. There's a brief caption on the front of the book that says an original and often surprising take on American history, the Wall Street Journal. And that should give you some insight into a book that I found unique, but also very, very gripping. Before we get into the show, however, it's been a while since I've thanked my patrons, and I really just wanted to take some time to say thank you to everyone who contributes to the show. So Camille, Christian, Brett at Crow Hollow, Debbie, Horsel, Gilham, a new Patreon this month, Greg Bice, Henry Ray, Jeremy Hahn, John Morrison, Mark, Max, Nathan Welsh, Oscar, Robert Bullock and Robert Wentworth, Steve and Taryn. Thank you very much for your ongoing support of the show makes it easier for me to get these episodes out there. It certainly helps with the platform costs and costs for books for the library. American Canopy is a book that is, well, it's tricky to insist on it being an absolute must-read for all woodworkers. So I'll try and contextualize who will enjoy it and why I'm probably biased in favor of the book. Since junior high, I've been in love with history, and I opted to take it as one of my elected subjects at school. After school, I went and got a degree in commerce, and while I was working in my mid-twenties, I signed up for a correspondence course through the American Military University. I wanted to get a Bachelor of Arts in Military History and Literature. Unfortunately, due to costs, I didn't finish that, but the mere fact that I was paying from my private salary for self-enrichment for history and literature should give you a sense of how I feel about both subjects. Whether it's the joiner and the cabinet maker, The Village Carpenter, The Wheelwright's Shop, all of these remain amongst my favourite books. So I should warn you that I'm reviewing American Canopy in that context. If you didn't enjoy those books, you probably won't enjoy this one either. I cannot overstate how much I learned from this book, because the author's approach is fundamentally different from most other books that you'll read on history. You might be familiar with the ebb and flow of the War of Independence, but it's unlikely that you've seen it covered from the point of view of the Liberty Tree and how a shortage of supply of tall masts from America impacted the British naval effort. Likewise, you're probably familiar with the First and Second World War. But in this book, you'll see it through the eyes of the men tasked with manufacturing Sitka spruce for early aircraft. Or you'll be reading about Japanese incendiary balloons that were used to strike against the American forests. These are the stories or the kind of angles Eric brings to history, and I found myself examining what I thought I knew from completely different perspectives as a result of this book. Simply put, this book is a documentary about the long love affair the American people have had with trees. So let's start at the beginning. In 1964, a bristlecone pine called Prometheus was cut down in a pretty cavalier manner. This turned out to be the oldest living tree on the North American continent and was dated at something in the region of 4,800 to 5,000 years old. Give or take a few centuries, and this makes it contemporaries 
with the construction of the Great Pyramid at Giza in Egypt. 3,000 years before the birth of Christ, this tree began its life, and yet, almost on a whim it was destroyed. I think that the start of the book is thought-provoking, but this isn't a tree-hugger's Bible. The stories in the book are told frankly, and I believe they give a balanced account of man's interaction and evolving treatment of trees. While the murder of Prometheus begins the book, inside it you'll find as much coverage given to the rise of logging empires as to the creation of national parks. As much insight into the history of the chestnut blight as to the monumental effort required to create Central Park. Erica set out to create a history of trees in America and to tell the stories of the characters who were dependent on them or who influenced how we relate to them. The book has 10 chapters and starts with the early British champions of colonisation who were convinced of the promise of the new continent, well before the first settlers arrived. We learn how since the mid-16th century trees were becoming a progressively scarcer resource in Britain and how laws were being promulgated to protect them. And then in 1584, we learn that Hacklate, a champion of colonisation for the purpose of obtaining woods, was already trying to convince Queen Elizabeth to exploit the Americas. This is hardly surprising when a wooden ship required in the order of 2,000 mature oak trees to make one. The story continues and I'll give a short extract here to give you an idea of the author's style. The forests were a frightening place for settlers transported from Europe. Savages lived there, alongside strange beasts, swarming insects and quite possibly the devil himself. But these fears were in some ways no more troubling than the trees themselves. The pilgrims could not begin planting crops, nor building homes, until they had cut them down, one by one, a task near impossible for men who had never handled heavy axes. One potential settlement region the pilgrims had a very great liking to plant in was rejected largely because of the trees. According to Bradford, it was so encompassed with woods that we should be in much danger of the savages and our numbers being so little and so much ground to clear, so as we thought quite good to quit and leave that place. Eventually, the pilgrims established their colony near Plymouth Harbour in an outcropping free of woods. The land's natural forest had earlier been cleared by Paxtukex Indians, who had been growing corn there until a 1617 plague decimated the population. Hacklade's travel narratives had described the continent as pristine territory, but in reality, the native population had shaped the forests for thousands of years through burnings and tree fellings. Many of the earlier settlement points, Plymouth, Boston, Salem, Medford, Watertown, were actually abandoned Indian fields or natural clearings, ironic for a Yankee culture that would soon be defined by trees. By the end of this chapter, we finish in 1787, as Thomas Jefferson is saying, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. At that point, we've actually learned quite a bit about the liberty tree in question, and the nature of the initial colonists' relationship with trees shifts as we go into the second chapter, titled, The Fruits of Union. I think one of the things that the author does well is to create logical breaks in the story and to bring the chapters together around shifting beliefs and utilization of trees. The second chapter feels like it moved from a darker time, 
to one of scientific advancement and we are introduced some really extraordinary characters. Bartram, who made a living supplying European botanists with samples and established his own nurseries for interesting plants. So too as Johnny Appleseed described, and George Washington, but both described in terms of how they lived and loved trees. I guess unavoidably some chapters seem to have a subtext of a particular tree, and if the first chapter was biased towards oak, the second has a distinct love of apples. Later on we'll examine chestnut in the context of disease and pest spread. The cherry trees are the capital in the context of the relationships with Japan, and we'll find orange alongside railroads. I enjoyed the way a tree, the mood of the times, and the stories of interesting characters are blended together to keep the story moving along. In each chapter there's a lot to process, but while you might feel a bit overwhelmed sometimes and stop to reflect on what you've just read, the book is definitely not some dry and dusty treatise. The Unrivaled Nature of America is the third chapter, and this focuses in many ways on how the westward expansion was enabled through timber and lumber. And yet at the same time we begin to see the emergence of a reverence for trees at odds with commercial exploitation. So Thoreau and the woods of Concord evolve into the fascinating story of the construction of Central Park. The scale and sheer amount of effort required for this initiative is staggering, and yet it speaks of the foresight of the times that this kind of investment could be made in a new city. I think that the spirit of the age was one where wood could be appreciated, and I think that Marsh's book Man and Nature could not have been as well received as earlier times. A quote from this 19th century book resonates through the ages. Man has too long forgotten that the earth was given to him for use of fract alone, not for consumption, still less for profligate waste. But while these new thoughts were beginning to influence behaviour, they would struggle against another force, as the late 19th century saw the true beginnings of modern industrialization. And as a result, the next chapter, Forests of Commerce, has a darker mood. From the great fire at Pechigo, to the insatiable demand for paper pulp and logger barons who emerged to exploit this need, the chapter is somber, although some of the statistics about the exploitation of the forests are at a scale that makes them virtually unbelievable. Fortunately, by a changing consciousness, the fifth chapter, we see an emergence of Arbor Day and a national desire to plant trees and protect certain forests. This was the checkered part of history with ebbs and flows, and as we trace the battles to protect the Adirondacks, it is clear that history could have taken a different and far more destructive path. I guess we owe a lot to Muir as a champion of the redwood groves, as well as Gifford Pinchot, along with Roosevelt who backed him, and allowed for the creation of many millions of acres of national parks. I mentioned earlier the oranges of the new frontiers and the extreme danger of bugs and diseases, first highlighted by the ill-fated first consignment of cherry trees to Washington. These two trees are the backdrop against which the next two chapters are woven, and bring the narrative forward to the 20th century. The narrative of the contribution of spruce trees to the war effort in the First World War comes next, and then it expands to include the unions, military organization of loggers, and Roosevelt's tree army, the Civilian Conservation Corps, one of the most widespread efforts ever to improve nature through a government employ of many destitute individuals in the wake of the Great Depression. And of course, let's not forget Smokey the Bear and his origins, 
those in the Second World War, the campaigns which were there to prevent needless fires. The two final chapters, post-war prosperity and the environmental era, bring the story up to present times. We learn of stories as far-ranging as Levitt suburban developments with their ubiquitous fruit trees, the quintessential American garden if you will, and all the way through to the initial motor car holidays across the nation, and the impact that they had on defining what constituted the good use of a forest. We'll also see this use expanded to the first preservation of pure wilderness areas, and the recognition that this is an important use for a percentage of forests, an idea that would have been inconceivable even a century before. While the impact of globalization and global warming do highlight real concerns, I feel that the tone of the book is cautiously optimistic and frank rather than preaching. I hope that the growing efforts to prevent deforestation are perhaps our time's way of preserving the natural wonder of the forests. Like the author, by the time you finish the book, I believe you will recognize that America's trees and forests are as necessary now as they ever were. So in conclusion, American Canopy is 348 pages long, if we skip the notes and appendices. At the same time, it's printed in a small font, so it packs a lot per page. It's written by Eric Ratkow, and as at February 2021, it'll cost you between $6 and $15 for a copy on the second-hand market. I'm giving the book a 7 out of 10 in the general category. I love the stories and vignettes, the range of cast of characters and species, and the broad sweep of history against which the book is set. Frankly, I enjoyed the book so much that I would often spend days on the beach sitting with my toes in the sand reading it. If that's not a recommendation, I don't know what is. I think this is a book that needed to be written, and its unique perspective is one that can be really appreciated by all of us who end up using the end product of the trees in our workshops. So that's it for now, Woodworms. Remember to take some time to appreciate the trees around you, and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured in a future episode, send me an email to handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes. <music>